0: Kia ora, I'm Jane, And I'm Sophie. Welcome to A TARDIS of One's Own. A queer feminist journey through time and space and new who. How are we this week? Have we have a good week? Ah, uh, yes. Um, so in New Zealand it is, we are recording on a Thursday, but tomorrow is our first annual Matariki public holiday. Mm. So, uh, you know, a day before a long weekend.
1: Yeah, great. Is... What an auspicious week, because we had the winter solstice on Tuesday, and then Matariki rose on solstice. So it's like, yeah, all of the stars are aligning for us. Like, have. actually, literal. Yeah. Celestial vibes. And it's like a nice midway point to reset and reflect on everything that I haven't yet done this year that I was thought I would have done, and now somehow it's July. So... Gotta reframe my thinking.
0: Yeah. Someone described it to me as like, without culturally appropriating anybody, that Matariki is, you could kind of approach it like a New Zealand indigenous Thanksgiving. Oh. So it's like an opportunity to kind of recenter and remember your ancestors and your present family and celebrate life and to focus on what you're grateful for.
1: Oh yeah, that's which, lovely. Yeah, it's lovely. It's so nice to have a long weekend though. Let's just be honest about that. Yeah, 100%.
0: And, but generally my week's been good. I think I think like busy always, you know. Yeah. But no one, no man has done anything to particularly rile me. No. In the workplace, so that's better than last week.
1: That is good. Similarly, have no no complaints from the men folk. <laughs> yeah. See, great. So this week the doctor returns Rose to her own time, well, sort of. But her family reunion is ruined when a spaceship crashes in the middle of London. The Slovene have infiltrated Parliament and have the Doctor and his friends trapped as the Doctor works to prevent them from starting World War III. Ooh. Dramatic.
0: Yeah. So before we crack into the the Bechdel test and then our discussion question slash theme, I think the elephant in this small, very small room (laughs) that we're in is that I hated these episodes. They're terrible. (laughs) With like a burning passion. It was the longest, I watched them back to back, so honestly it was an hour and a half of just me being like, is it over yet? Like, and I've really been enjoying them, like, the first three. Like, 45 minutes is a nice length, there's the nice setup at the beginning, we understand where they're going. You know, there's some, like, drama and peril, there's some alienateness, and then we have a nice kind of wrap-up. But the fact that it was a two-parter, the fact that the storyline was, like, meh. Yeah. I just actively disliked it. What did you think?
1: I am not a fan of these episodes. I never have been. Um, And I think I said to you when I gave you the disc, I was like, this is the one with all the farting
0: in it. I'd forgotten the farting and I didn't enjoy it. It's just, yeah, it's not a great...
1: Piece of like not cinema but you know television. It's just not an enjoyable time. I don't think. Maybe if you were a kid, maybe it'd be funnier. I don't know. Like if you're approaching it from a younger point of view. But as an adult, it didn't really have much to inspire
0: me. No, I think I spent the time wondering who the farting was aimed at. Mm. So maybe children, right? It's like you know, like you said, it's a kid show but like up to this point we've really not been having child pitched humor.
1: Yeah, it's really cheap humor, right? But yeah, absolutely
0: yeah. and they keep doing it. Like they double down on the farting.
1: Yeah, because if it was just like a one off thing or maybe once or twice but it was all the time and it it just wasn't funny. No. So every time it happened it was just like ugh.
0: Yeah. Also kind of fatphobic? Yeah, yeah, okay. So let's get to that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's I think there's a lot a lot of fodder for discussion with mm-hmm. this week's theme. So first of all, back to test
1: Yes, it does pass the backdale test because you've got Harriet Jones and Rose on their little adventure around Downing Street and they definitely talk about things that are not male of interest.
0: Yes. And then also Rose and Jackie. Yes, of course. And her just being like, where have you been? Yeah. That was quite
1: rough. I really felt for Jackie in that
0: moment. Yeah. That was horrific. And also
1: for Mickey, like being mm. accused. Because it's always
0: the husband or the boyfriend, right? But also
1: there's this other racial element to it, right? Yeah. That's really uncomfortable
0: sidebar, how often does the TARDIS get time wrong? Because in the last week's episode with Wales, all he, the time he was convinced they were in 1860 and it was actually 1869 and it was not Naples, it mm. was in fact Cardiff
1: no, it's a running joke that it often uh, gets it wrong, okay. yeah messes it up, but then conveniently sometimes it can just pop in and out like it does in this episode when it goes to Parliament and comes back, right? So sometimes yeah. it gets it right, but sometimes it doesn't
0: yeah, because that's literally no time change that's just space change in this same moment mm. okay, so on that, why didn't they just get back in the tireless when they realised they made a mistake and then go back a year? But then obviously there would be no plot.
1: Yeah, I wonder that's why he chases after her, right? Because he has to stop her before she gets to Jackie. Maybe that sets the sets
0: oh, the timeline in concrete. Yeah, you know, they because they've changed events and they're interacting. And yeah, he could have been like, no, just get back in the tireless, I made a mistake. Timey-wimey. Yeah, timey-wimey, question mark.
1: Okay, <laughs> Cool. So Yeah, do you want to tell us what our discussion question is this week?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So watching this, I thought there were, as with all of the episodes, a lot of angles to take. We had a chat this week about different kind of themes we could explore. The one that I thought would be interesting is to talk about the pressure to conform in order to be accepted. Obviously, in this episode, that's done with a nefarious intent. Mm -hmm. The Slitheen want to infiltrate for their own benefit and so they take on the form of humans in order to fit in to specifically powerful humans of varying degrees Mm. but they're using that form to get what they want get where they need to be and cause you know chaos and economic benefit to themselves that's kind of something interesting to talk about this conforming to be accepted and i think in our discussions here the, the point the point of this perspective we're bringing is to, to look at this through that feminist and queer lens and there's a lot of feminist and queer experience mm-hmm. you know women people of color trans people non-binary people who neurodivergent people who do a lot of conforming mm-hmm. in order to fit in and that could be you know as you know at the one end of the spectrum just to have an easier time at work to be considered professional at the other end it can be literally for life and death safety because you can't be who you are, and you can't mm. present physically who you are in some environment. So that yep. was that was my thought. And it's interesting because also that shifts, right?
1: So you might be able to express yourself one way in a, in a city, and then you go into a regional area, and you definitely can't present yourself that way there, right? Because there are just different rules in place. And it's definitely something that I get quite annoyed by, because, I don't know, I'm not much on boxes or constraints. So the idea that we have these arbitrary rules that as a society we just have to conform to that and no one, who decided on these things who decided these rules right and you have to we all have to conform to them or you face these repercussions whether people acknowledge that there are repercussions or not is besides the point like you know if you wear a short skirt to work then people are going to think a certain thing about you or if you're a guy and you wear like i don't know sparkly shoes to work then someone's going to think something about you as well like it's not just yeah it works on so many different levels and who decided? Why do we have to do it? It's so annoying.
0: Yeah. I completely agree and I think that you make a great point there that it's not something that you can do surreptitiously. Mm. Like you just want to do your thing, everyone wants to live their life, be happy, express themselves however they wish and however they feel they want, you know, they want to be seen. Mm. But the nature of Kind of a judgmental environment is that people will notice and internally or externally comment and so that's sh- that's shit for people who especially are maybe you know exploring gender exploring clothing choices you know just finding out who they are through trial and error like most mm. of us do especially when we're younger but then you, you feel this pressure because you know people will be looking and making a judgment it's not like go with the flow kind of environments mostly so I do, I, I'm conscious of that, and I have been through growing up, right? that So, you know, maybe I choose, as I've got older, I've chosen to dress in an increasingly masculine way, and, you know, I still feel that that's almost a political choice, mm. and that's bullshit, and I don't want it to be. It's just how I feel comfortable, and yeah. I, how I, you know, feel my best self, and that's as simple as it is, like,
1: yeah. It's, I read this article in preparation for this which is called What Happens When Men Don't Conform and it was this author talking about a book that he wrote and I'll put the links in the show notes but it's interesting because I talk about you know men who dress what he terms fabulous men and how they police their clothing when they go to work to avoid masculinity dilemmas in the work environment so you know situations where their behaviors and appearances are in contrast to the dominant ideas of what it means to be a man and there was this great line where it said you know if men didn't dress the way that they were expected if they weren't in a suit or whatever they be denied opportunities and become seen as problems in the organisation. And he talks about, there's one case study in particular about a man called Dave who had fears about crossing gender boundaries at work. And the quote says, while masculinity is often held up as the epitome of strength and power, it is actually quite fragile in identity because it's always at risk of being broken. Gender has long been presented as a straightforward binary, but in reality, we all embody various degrees of masculinity and femininity by wearing feminine clothing rather than the ubiquitous business suit. Fabulous men force Dave to confront the supposed naturalness of masculinity and thus his power by calling out the multiplicity of ways men can engage with gender at work. So by dressing in this like non-masculine way, it makes the other men panic because the only way they hold power is by being masculine if you are rejecting that masculinity, you are reflecting how fragile that power is because it's not a real concept. It is a made-up concept.
0: Ooh, that is really interesting. Hmm. And that's a side of it that I feel isn't the most common one. Yeah. So typically the anger will be the pressure for women to dress in a certain way, to be respected, to be promoted. Yeah, absolutely. Because the default is professional masculine man. Mm -hmm. That's a fresh perspective that I think is, is really interesting.
1: Thank you. It's just interesting because it says, you know, in many ways, fabulous clothes suggest to some men that the inherent power they possess, particularly white, straight, middle-class men, is man-made and therefore can be lost. Most of what these men have been taught, come to believe and experience as men is undone when they see other men willingly, happily, and openly embrace femininity. And embracing femininity through clothing is one of the most visible manifestations of testing the boundaries of masculinity and thus men's natural power. Which I think flips the other way as well because I own a men's suit that I love and when I would wear it people would freak out like I wore it once meeting the military guys and they were a bit like I had very short hair and I was wearing a suit like full tie everything the whole situation and I think it is the same thing at play it's this idea that you are now in the masculine space and that challenges their masculinity because they're like but this is our natural power structure so what are you doing in here but on the flip side if you're too feminine then they don't take you seriously either like if you're too well done like if your hair is too done if your makeup's too done You know, they like the no-makeup look, and they don't realise that the no-makeup look is actually quite a lot of work.
0: Yes. Firstly, please wear that suit to work, because I have never seen it, and it sounds glorious. And I want to see you in it, and be your fabulous self. And also, please fuck with any men that think (laughs) it's bullshit anyway, here. Yeah, okay, so makeup, great point. Thank you. I have some notes around that. So I, you know, started wearing makeup as a teenager, like pretty much everyone, kind of wear too much eyeliner. <laughs> everyone has a little emo phase. And then carried that on when I started, you know, through uni and then started working. And increasingly through my twenties, I was kind of just like, oh, you know, reading more about stuff and who I wanted to be and kind of presenting and, and was like oh, I don't know if this is something I feel like I have to do versus I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so started wearing a bit less makeup to the job I was at at the time and got lots of, oh, Sophie, are you okay? Are oh you looking God. a bit sick? I was like, no, I'm just this is just my face. I'm just wearing a bit less makeup. And I was never like, you know, it's totally cool if you do this, but I particularly was never a person who wore heaps of makeup anyway. Mm-hmm. But still, I still got that kind of attention. So that made me a little bit scared. So I kind of carried on wearing the same amount of makeup I normally did. And then... I took the opportunity when I left that job at my new place to just turn up the first day with a completely clean, bare face. Mm. And it was totally fine because people, I mean, to be fair, an organization where typically there's like less makeup worn, I would say, generally. Yeah. We're like public sector versus private sector. So it's less of a thing. But there's still, you know, there's still the same standards that apply to everyone in terms of there's an expectation that women probably should and would. Yeah, so and it's been great. I've saved 20 minutes in the morning, and I've come to have kind of a face acceptance. Mm. You know, my skin isn't brilliant all the time. Like, I've always had kind of issues with my complexion, but fuck it, I don't actually care. Yeah, absolutely. And and I have a a face confidence, Mm. if you could call it that, that I am still working on with body confidence. Mm. So it's interesting, like, I have this complete open confidence with everything, like, above my neck. (laughs) But below the neck is a work in progress. So... Mm. There's still definitely a standard, like you mentioned before, if you look a certain way, like I know there's somebody that we work with who, who shared that, you no, know, because they present a certain way that's associated with quite high femininity, that they have been spoken down to mm-hmm. and disrespected and treated as though they were stupid, mm-hmm. purely based on how they look, before anyone's had any interaction with the intellect or the work or the kind of attitude of that person. And it's probably such a universal experience. Yeah. That's shit.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's interesting that you mentioned that we work somewhere where there is less makeup, because I remember really noticing that when I first started. And I'm like, wow, a lot of women here do not wear makeup. And I felt like people don't really approve of women who wear makeup here. Mm. I think that's like the flip side, because I have worked marketing roles in the past, and to be very stereotypical, women who work in marketing are often, you know, full face makeup, very well put together, very stylish. And so I am not a full face makeup kind of girl. I do wear makeup, but... Mm minimal effort and so I like I, I never felt like I fit in with the marketing girls because they're so glamorous right and then I came here and I'm like oh gosh I'm wearing too much makeup <laughs> like, now I'm not fitting in on that level so it's that interesting kind of it's just no matter what you do you're screwed
0: yeah so probably the only response is to just not try right yeah but then that that is not said lightly because that comes with a lot of cost if you actively choose not to conform so maybe
1: the solution to the makeup conundrum is just being like everyone do what makes you happy as long as you're doing it
0: for you <laughs> Absolutely. That is the key point. And when I stopped wearing makeup, I'd around that time read a piece by Catelyn Moran, Mm. um, British journalist and author. And she had said that something that was guiding her thinking was, are the men worrying about this? And, you know, I sat with that and I was like, no, no man that I work with, you know, in the company that I was at the time are coming to work. And, you know, are like, oh, is my does my face look all right? Does my face look professional? Obviously, because, you know. Not a standard for them, so I was like, nah, fuck it. So, from then, I've really tried to just check myself with that. So, if I'm worried about anything to do with my appearance, or you know, even it extends to presenting and conforming with my personality, I Mm. think. So, I talked about this before, I identify as quite introverted, that's kind of my natural style, but uh, for a number of reasons, but I suppose I'm quite situationally extroverted, Mm. so like in close social circles or at work, I can kind of become more introverted in that scenario. And, well, you know, in a, in a meeting or whatever, in a team meeting, like if I have an opinion, I'll happily share that, especially within a team that I work with and I trust mm-hmm. and, I, and I feel safe. Mm-hmm. But I've had some pushback, typically from male bosses and managers, sometimes from female, but I would say a lot more from male, to saying, you know, oh, Sophie, you've, you've come across as passionate. Being a euphemism for angry. Mm-hmm. And it's something, you know, I've not been angry about at all. I've just dissented with an opinion. I've disagreed with something. I like to say that I, yeah, I can get like outspoken. I'm not going to talk around a subject. I can be, the accusation is always that I'm too direct. Mm. Um, but I value that as an open communication style. So I have to check myself because I recognize that some people don't like directness. That they find it confrontational. So I try to, to kind of soften that. But typically I'm just like calling a spade a spade. Like I'm actively not trying to be an asshole and I never ever want to hurt someone's feelings. But if I disagree with something and that's an opinion coming from a male boss, typically a male boss who's older than me, I will say, I disagree with you and this is why. I'm not going to say no to doing a piece of work, but I might say, I don't agree with you. However, I'm happy to respect your wishes, and then get on with the work. But I'm not going to pretend that I think this is a good idea. Disagree and commit. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I've had some really interesting pushback that then they kind of get riled up. They think that because they want me to to be probably that meek, mild-mannered idea of what they want in an employee and probably what they want in a woman.
1: It's interesting that you say, you know, you make the decision being like, is this something a man worries about? And then you'll make your, your decisions on that, which I think is great. The problem we face is that like society is still judging you differently, right? So you can go, men aren't worrying about this, so I won't either. But the external forces that keep us oppressed <laughs> will still hold you to that standard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a cost there.
1: Which is, as you say, the yeah. cost where it's like, you're
0: too passionate. I get, I get one-on-one feedback sessions. I'm you're like, bracer. Sophia, can we just uh, have a five-minute chat?
1: It's so annoying. It was funny reading for this episode because I realised that I spent an entire semester at uni talking about... This stuff and talking about societal expectations and conformity, like we did a lot of work on Levi Strauss and signifiers and the body as a signifier, and how we assign floating meaning to things, and that's malleable. And then we did a lot of work on Foucault as well, because Foucault and lots of post-structuralists building on their work, there's this idea that hegemonic masculine authority in Western culture is uh, maintained through the active biological and social control of women's bodies, right? So there's this idea that through norms, values, and beliefs, they keep you down, and that's how they maintain power. So women's bodies become socially constructed, monitored, and regulated in accordance with the dominant image of what a feminized body is. And that is the body that they can control or the body that they approve of. So it's usually, you know, thin yet curvy, placid yet playful, sexy but wholesome, you know, the saint or the whore.
0: Yeah. So in line with that, in order to try and fit to that expectation, the amount of effort, the amount of time that it takes women and others to fit to that ideal. Well, think about the time women
1: waste. Like, if we think... Let's think about someone getting ready to go on a date, right? A man throws on a shirt, maybe he shaves, maybe. Often you see men out on dates and I'm like, you've made zero effort. And then a woman will wash her hair, do her makeup, probably shave or some other sort of hair removal process. Like we're talking hours worth of work for some unwashed man.
0: A man with a neck beard. Yeah. Just tidy up the neck beard. And you think, like, I had a
1: conversation with our manager the other day when he I asked him what time he gets to work. And he's like, from the time I get out of bed to when I get to work is about 15 minutes. I'm like, it's because you're a man. I know.
0: <laughs> you're looking So I'm shocked. doing a shocked face, shocked Pikachu. <laughs> Wow, so you I... do does shower
1: here, though, to be fair.
0: Oh, uh, okay, okay, okay. This
1: is probably too much information about our
0: manager. But still, that's quite... A, so I think I have a pretty snappy turnaround because I've made, like, a strategic decision of recent years to sh- wash my hair in the evening. So I save a heap of time. But still, like, I don't I don't even have breakfast at home. No, neither. I still have breakfast at work, I, but, Yeah, well, yeah.
1: I'm doing it on company time because yeah. <laughs> stick it to the man. <laughs> So, um, no, I've got a quite a tight routine because I, as you know, do not like mornings, and therefore I'm often late, often sleeping through various alarms, of which I have about eight, and I can probably get everything done in half an hour, so one, yeah. one might finally roll out of bed till when I leave the house, I can do it in half an hour. Yeah,
0: same. And I feel like that's a tight turnaround. Like, I know... When I was still doing, like, makeup and, like, washing my hair in the morning and then blow-drying it because I didn't want my hair to be, like, messy for work and doing makeup, I would get up, like, a decent hour, hour 15 before I had to leave. Yeah, hour 15 before I had to leave the house. Mm. And then still have, like, a little drive to work. And it's just, like... Yeah, I mean, I do the
1: BIM. Like, I don't blow-dry my hair for work. I do very basic makeup that probably takes me 10 minutes of that. But if I'm going out, like, if I'm going to a party... Like, I need at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half, which is fine. Like, I like doing it. I like putting tunes on and having a bit of a... It gets me yeah, in the party mood. You that's for you.
0: The thing is, that's for you. That's mm. not for how you feel that you should be... Like, I'm not trying to impress anyone. No, no, exactly. And so it's just for you and how you want to be around your friends and then what makes you happy. Like, rather than being like, oh, if I don't do this, are people going to look me at a meeting and then... You know, you shared this, we'll keep this anonymous, but you shared this recently with me, this anecdote about someone you knew who was getting ignored in meetings because of the way that they look and that people didn't think that that person had a valid view.
1: Yeah. Until someone else reinforced Raised the same it. idea.
0: And you've said that's happened to you as well, like in previous jobs. You know, you've had ideas that... Oh, then...
1: yeah. Because you're a young woman and therefore your ideas can't be valid. And then someone else does the exact same thing and they get all the plaudits because they happen to have... <laughs>
0: yes. Joy. First mention of a penis on the podcast. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I feel like I need to drag it back to Doctor Who because that was a fascinating feministy query discussion.
1: We didn't but... even get into people who have to, like, you no, know. No, not at all.
0: Maybe we'll, we'll
1: explore it. We'll... Because, yeah, you've got the whole element of. I find it so fascinating. So you've got people trying to pass the straight, right? You've got neurodivergent people who have to mask in order to fit into divergent spaces. You've got this idea of not conforming, often also being conforming. Like, you know, I'm a massive fan of subcultures. I did a big study on subcultures. And this idea that once you join a subculture, you're just conforming in a new way. Like, if you were a punk in the 70s, you had very strict ways in which you had to behave. Like, it's all like, woo, anarchy, but it's also not.
0: Yeah, no, not at all. This is a prime way to get, segue back to the, uh, the episode, Jen. Mm. In Jackie's house, random goths on the sofa, instantly <laughs> recognisable as goths because goths have a uniform. Yeah. They looked like goths. So, yeah, you're totally right, I get that. And so when kids are, you know, teens are like, no, just want to be myself, but then like everyone's wearing the same hoodie. Well, and
1: subcultures can get very expensive, like especially punk, you know, if you think about the way that trans-morphed into Vivian Westwood and all that stuff. Suddenly you're talking about very expensive. Being a goth is very expensive. That was why I was an emo when I was younger. I could not afford to be a goth. I had to be the budget version, which is the hot topic version.
0: (laughs) I recently found out how much Dot Martins cost. Yeah. And like every kind of punky, like hardcore person. Which is the capitalism, which is I also think is interesting because
1: if we wanted to give a kind reading to this episode we both loathe, it could be a commentary on capitalism, right? These people have come in, they're just going to exploit the planet, turn it into sludge and then sell it off because they want to make a profit. So is that not capitalism?
0: Yeah, coming in, exploiting Taking what you need. Ruining the environment. Getting the fuck out of there and just leaving a wasteland behind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, general thoughts on the episode. I think that, you, you mentioned it earlier, but the fact that they need to choose larger bodied people because they have to fit their alien form
1: yeah.
0: into a much smaller skin suit. Wouldn't mm. <laughs> Call it charming. Um, and during the discussion, where you know, the nice exposition for us as the audience that they talk about that, I think the Doctor is explaining the idea of the compression field, and that's mm. what they're wearing around their neck. And then Rose says, "Wish I had a compression field. Could be a size smaller." Mm-hmm. It's like, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's not great because she's already so tiny.
0: <laughs> yeah, she's like ve- very slim woman, like absolutely.
1: Which just reinforces this whole thing about women always wanting to be smaller, right? I read this article as well, or a journal article about this, which is called "Sized Out: Women, Clothing Size, and Inequality," mm. which is all about people ascribe social worth to the dress size, mm. and how messed up that is when you can be a size six in one shop and a size fifteen or sixteen rather in a different shop, like, and that just there's no uniformity in clothing sizes, but people moralize size. And so when someone says something like that, it's always like being smaller is better. better. Being smaller is morally superior. And how many things women put off because they'll do it when they're thinner.
0: Oh yeah, that cuts close to home. So for our listeners, I am very open about the fact that I have had a kind of journey and experience with an eating disorder. I went into recovery for anorexia. Shit coming up five years ago. Be five years at the end of the year. And I'm still definitely that's a work in progress uh i'm still tested when i'm going through a bad patch that that pattern of behavior and thinking isn't the way that i deal with um bad times mm. yeah so i have like a very kind of physical mental reaction to anything like this in in shows and and tv and books still and I just hate it. I hate the fact that that was just like a throwaway, humorous comment from a young, beautiful, totally, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Like, even I say beautiful, that doesn't have anything to do with it. This is just like a show that's being shown to children in 2005, for Christ's sake. Yeah. And this is something that the writers thought was cool. But to be fair, this episode, as with a few of them, hasn't aged well. Like, we were talking about it and you missed it and you're watching. But early in the app when they're having a chat, Rose and the doctor are complaining about, well, no, discussing how he got slapped by... Jackie and then you know, Rose is kind of taking the piss out of him and says oh you're so gay
1: yeah and to quote our prophet's fallout boy gay is not a synonym for Shetty but it was back remember 2005 like people were saying it all all the time, calling things gay. I it just, was horrific. I mean,
0: is this the benefit of our, you know, intervening 17 years and how, you know, society's kind of in some ways, for some people, moved on? But to me, that just sounds wild that mm. people would, I mean, yeah, like the kids are saying it and like kids say shitty things but that someone would write that yeah. I mean, and then the writers would be like, yeah, cool, this is going into the final script and the actors would be like, yeah, fine, totally cool thing for me to say. You know what, that's a fair
1: point because when I think about it, I remember people saying it in high school but to have it in dialogue and a script is probably...
0: And again, this is a script written by a man who wrote Queer as Folk. Yeah, literally. This is primetime BBC viewing by a guy who would know, you'd think more than most people, about let's not associate gay with shit. Mm. And also, yeah. yeah,
1: it's interesting and Rose making that comment about being a size smaller, is then played off against these aliens taking off their skin suits and there's that line where, you know, the guy says, he's in the left and he's like, I need to be naked. And the other guy says, rejoice in it, your body is magnificent. And it's sort of played out as disgusting and it's it's just, it's very uncomfortable when you have these aliens associated
0: with larger bodies. Yeah, that it makes them, by association, yucky and weird and gross. Yeah. And especially because of the farting. Yeah, that bloody fucking gas exchange throughout the episode. They're like, oh, trouble with the gas exchange. Ha <laughs> Yuck. I also
1: hated when they're doing the hunting scene and they're like sniffing out Rose and Harriet. And there's that line, I can smell an old girl's stale perfume and brittle bones. I just hated that. And then a ripe youngster, hormones and adrenaline. I'm like, this is really gross. Oh, I'd forgotten
0: about that bit. Yeah, that bit was really gross. Ugh.
1: And also I just I took quite a lot of issue with how the doctor was treating Mickey in this these two episodes. I thought he was just really unnecessarily mean and derogatory to Mickey. He's so like I literally my note says, Doctor Arrow, so rude to Mickey. It's just unnecessary. You know, he just, like, keeps having little digs at Rose about it. You know, he says to Rose, you kiss this man? And stuff like that. Like, he's just always putting the boot in. And and why?
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I think the kind of superficial angle would be to be like, is he covering an insecurity? Because that's typically why bullies are bully, right? Mm. It's because they're covering up an insecurity. But... And I do think he does really value her. You know, later on in there, he shows serious worry about the idea of losing her. Mm. So maybe it's an aspect of that, but I think he yeah. just thinks Mickey's dumb. But that's
1: also enforcing a binary, the idea that he has yeah. to compete with Mickey for Rose's affection as if she's not capable of holding... And like, and she says in this episode, you know, he's more than... What is that Yeah, like? no,
0: no, yeah. So um, she says, not my boyfriend, better than that, much, much more, more important. important. Yeah. Which is like, cool.
1: Oh. Yeah, so the doctor's trying to belittle Mickey and sort of force him out of Rose's life. is It's quite controlling and it's quite like, You can only have me as your friend. I don't know. It makes me quite uncomfortable. And Mickey, having been accused of Rose's disappearance, being taken into custody, having this horrible trauma, then he sees her when he turns up to Jackie's place, right? And... You know, she has this tearful moment with Jackie, but she doesn't really, like, apologise to... And Mickey knew that she went with the Doctor, I guess, But mm. and he's been keeping this secret for her, and then the Doctor is still so mean to him. I'm like, I feel like Mickey's been through quite a lot, and he's sort of held your secret close for you as well. Like, he... I suppose they would have thought he was crazy if he said she'd gone with an alien,
0: but, you yeah. know? No, it's a, it's a great point. Like, he's had an absolutely shocking year. Jackie's had a worse one. And he is a black yeah. man in South London, like... Or wherever they are, I assume it's South London. <laughs> yeah, it gives South London vibes, but I actually don't know anything about London, which is embarrassing as an English person. But it's very far away from the bit of England that I'm from and I'm like a country bumpkin. Mm, so cute. Yeah. <laughs> so you have after two years there you have spent probably like twenty times more time in London than I ever have. So Okay, I'll
1: bring the city perspective.
0: <laughs> exactly awesome
1: um Harriet Jones also makes that comment when she first turns up at the Downing Street you know and everyone's so dismissive of her and she's like I'm hardly one of the babes I'm just a faithful backbencher like I hate the idea that and you know I've spoken to you about how she is very dismissed and she isn't basically an invisible middle-aged woman and there's a lot of shushing People are constantly shushing her, which yeah. makes me very
0: angry. Or just like, oh, yeah, but there's no time for you to be seen by anyone important. Please just
1: wait. And yet yeah. the doctor turns up and he's immediately to the, the unit soldiers, you know, engage defense protocol delta and unit just follow his directions. They don't know him from a bar of soap. Like yeah. this is before they've identified him as like a, a key asset. Hmm. So that's saying about channel the confidence of a mediocre white man. Every day of my life. <laughs> Jackie and Mickey's double act is quite fun, though I will say that yeah, together. And
0: I think that I mean, there's a lot of water under the bridge that they have to get over there. Mm. You know that she really thought that Mickey had like done Rose in, and then realizes she's wrong. So yeah,
1: he comes to save her life, and then he suddenly turns into Mickey the hacker, which is not you know (laughs) led into at all. He's just at a computer. I'm in. I'm in. Also, enormous
0: lol at the physical, the sheer heft. Of that desktop The good old days Like you've got a monitor That's as deep as it is wide Those were the days Incredible yeah, so interesting episode for, for a few people, I think. Jackie, you know, comes into her own a bit in that, you know, she can really show that what that cost has been to her in mm. that year. And at the end, she's still like, you know, she doesn't want Rose to go.
1: Yeah, and I thought it was really sad that she thought it, would, it was something that she'd done. Like, she thought that, you know, she basically just says, it's something that I've done. And that's quite sad. Like, that is really horrible for her to feel like she's failed as a mother and that's driven Rose away, right?
0: Well, and, and it's quite a interesting insight into her personality. Because typically she comes, like, she has come across quite superficially. And she, you know, kind of is quite self-absorbed. Mm. But actually, you know, I think she kind of just does live for her daughter. Yeah. She means well, right? Like, this is, that
1: mm. comes from a good place. Even if we look back on the first episode when she was trying to get Rose compensation, it was kind of, like, it was very annoying, but it was kind of like coming from a, a good place. It's only that it's it's what she knows. Like, she's conforming to the situation that she's in. Like yeah. If we want to go back to our theme of conformity, like, she is enacting the signifier, she's enacting the behaviour that she thinks is expected of her, and this is how she's going to get ahead. Yeah, right? absolutely.
0: And you play the angle that you have, right? You play the cards you are dealt. Yeah. And, as a working-class single mother. Mm. You know, she has a limited set of cards, so...
1: Which we also see Harriet Jones do. She plays the card she's dealt. Like, you know, she's hovering around. And then she... When the doctor gets taken into the room and they won't let Rose go, she's like, oh, I'll, I'll look after her. I, I, let me be good for something. But she's doing that very yep, tactically. Absolutely. She's like, they don't view me as a threat. I can just she take control. She is smartest
0: person in the room. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's interesting so we've talked about you know that idea of that pressure to conform to be accepted especially physically especially for women especially for women in the workplace talked about men's experience of of having to conform to that idea of masculinity, especially, again, in the workplace. Touched on the idea of of masking if you're neurodivergent, to be accepted, to kind of be able to to get what you need from social interactions. um.
1: And to make other people not uncomfortable. I think that's often what it is, because people who are neurotypical get really distressed when they're around people who are neurodivergent. They're like, oh, I don't know how to behave. Mm -hmm. So neurodivergent people learn to mask so they don't engender that behaviour in someone else, which is an enormous amount of emotional labour to put on people that they have to conform to this way of thinking. You're you're
0: bearing the physical and mental cost of the masking, plus also the emotional labour for looking after everybody else's feelings too.
1: Plus also just trying to exist in a world that's not made for you, and that's telling you that you just have to cope with that. And that's not, you know, it's not your fault that this world was built in this way, but you for some reason, just have to deal with that. Which I hate.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And um, yeah. One thing I will say, like, one of the things I hate in TV shows, or like in media in general, is when people purposely get other people's names wrong. So the doctor in this episode keeps calling him Ricky. Like, he makes such a joke of not knowing his name, and I just think it's so disrespectful, and it's like, when you know someone's name, and you, on purpose, use a different name just to rile them, it's just the worst. Don't do it. When someone yeah. tells you they want to be called something, call them that. It costs you nothing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we know, like, the doctor, he's a smart guy, he knows He's corrected a couple of times Like he just it's not funny. I don't find it funny. It's weird. It's just It just comes across as that vibe of him being extremely rude and disrespectful to Mickey. And I don't think Mickey's earned it.
1: I don't no, think there's no. anything he's done to deserve that level of vitriol. And then the Doctor kind of comes good at the end of the episode when he's like, you were quite good. You know, Mickey has proven his worth. So he's worthy of an invitation into the TARDIS. And Mickey's like,
0: no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, great. Rather than just being like, oh, yeah, because he's realized now. Nah, it's not for me. Another thing we can briefly touch on is that idea of the pressure to conform but then being misinterpreted you know through that conformity so i I think you kind of mentioned it in brief earlier but like just personally mm-hmm. i pass a straight and when i was younger you know, that gave me more comfort i don't want to stand out you know mm-hmm. i don't want to have extra tension. i was very shy when i was younger as well but now i'm kind of pissed off at it <laughs> because i'm very proudly queer and we, well you know i don't feel the need to like put that on a billboard i definitely don't want to be like you know making it my sole personality i have heaps of depths as a person and value to give that isn't my queerness but also i i don't want to be just assumed to be straight as well Mm. and then people have certain assumptions that go with that right
1: yeah it's interesting because i again was reading this study that was called i don't like passing as a straight woman and it talks about how passing is problematic because it reinforces the presumed essentiality of sex and gender binaries because if you're passing as something you're saying that this is the thing so if you're passing as a woman then you're saying that There are two binaries, that sort of thing. So if you're a non-binary person, where do you exist in this world that only has two binaries? Like, you know, what becomes authentic? And notions of passing, therefore, tend to be predicated upon assumptions of naturalized difference. Yeah. I often think about the idea that people are forced to come out. And people always ask about celebrities in particular. They're always like oh well, I, you know, there's all these questions about Harry Styles, right? Like, oh, what's his sexuality? Why does it matter? I wish yeah. no one had to come out. I wish we didn't assume everyone is straight. I wish that wasn't the base assumption. And that it just wasn't a thing. Yeah, Because like, it's such a stress to put on people to come out. Why do you have to announce it?
0: It's so annoying. Very recent Antipodean example. Mm. Rebel Wilson. Mm. You no, know, she broke that news story on her own terms, but only because she was being forced to, right? And the Sydney Morning Herald has since said, you know, please don't litigate us, Sydney Morning Herald. They've since said that, oh, we weren't, we were just asking questions, and...
1: Yeah, the worst bit about that it was a gay man asking questions, I just, we're...
0: And the sense of entitlement in in an opinion piece that's since been pulled, I think, of him being like, they gazumped me! That was (laughs) my story about somebody else's totally and entirely private life. I just don't understand why it's a big deal, (sighs) like... It's, the,
1: it's because of the binary right and it's the heteronormativity it's assuming that everyone is straight so therefore when you're not straight it becomes a big deal but in an ideal world no one will ever have to come out like it's just you're just with who you're with and
0: it's not a big deal I cling to a hope that that is the future yeah so I read, you know, you recommended it to me. A brilliant series recently, the Wayfarer series by Becky Chambers, and in that it's set in a distant future where humans are out amongst lots of other species galactically. Humans are actually a relatively insignificant species hmm. on the grand scheme of things in terms of, you know, value that they have to give, but they are known for kind of more personal traits, like not innovations, not technological advances, but you know their kindness and that kind of thing. But what's really great about the Galactic Commons, which is the kind of group of the goodies largely in that universe, is that everybody, when they're meeting different species, when they're meeting new people, because everybody's species, like literally non-humans, have completely ideas of gender and sexuality, the default is to say z, mm. z and z for pronouns, because no one assumes. I also
1: love in that series how the assumption is just no one's ever going to be comfortable because they don't all share the same body temperature they don't all share the same expectations around you know where they're going to sleep or whatever so this clothes or
0: no clothes yeah
1: so they just create this assumption that well we're all going to do things that make us all a little bit uncomfortable because we just have to get to a baseline that works for everyone and that's going to mean it's not going to favor any one person I do think if you're a doctor who fan you should read the way series I think it'll probably appeal to you it's great sci-fi it's really lovely low stakes sci-fi yeah
0: absolutely you described it to me me really well especially the first book that it's just brilliant sci-fi domesticity it's about these people and their connections to each other yeah and they just happen to be in a sci-fi environment it's fantastic world building there's so much characterization it's delightfully queer it's super inclusive i just love it
1: and the language is interesting just everything that yeah everything around it is really interesting so yeah
0: that's your little recommendation from the pod this week mm. Some random observations. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the farting. Gross, yuck, sad face. Literally in my notes. There's a sad face. <laughs> the you're so gay thing. Horrible. Torchwood cameo again. Yeah, we've Tashiko. got Tosh. Yeah. Awesome. I'm fairly sure they also retconned this into Torchwood that, <laughs> that she was
1: actually Tosh in this moment.
0: At what point, you may not know this off the top of your head, but at what point did they conceive of Torchwood? I don't
1: know. I'm Probably after Jack Harkness is introduced in this series, right? Because okay. it was quite popular within the fandom. And so they spun off this whole series about it. Torchwood takes place after... To the Cybermen attack in the second season. Okay. Because that's how Yanto ends up in Cardiff with a cyber girlfriend. Spoiler. Lol. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, cool. Okay, okay. So maybe like as they were going, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We haven't even talked about the pig astronaut, the sad yeah. pig astronaut. It's horrible. Being forced to be an alien. But just being, you know, having enough intellect to have his brain augmented enough to do the things of flying the ship but not enough to understand or, you know. The doctor says,
1: you know, they've taken this animal
0: and turned it into a joke. Oh, really it's sad. so sad. Yeah, final note I kind of made was we, we're we having some heavy drops around Bad Wolf. Yes, this is our second one. So
1: first mention of the Bad Wolf was, of course, Gwyneth in the previous episode. And now they're really like starting to hammer home the
0: Bad Wolf angle. So we shall see. And, well, maybe. Well, despite these being two episodes that we loathe with a burning passion... <laughs> um did you have a standout moment
1: I did and this is why the standout moment is important because I think it's good for us to always end on a positive note because we do like the show as a whole and therefore I don't want us to get too angry about episodes that disappoint us so my standout moment is when the doctor is like I actually have two but my first one is when he's just so happy to say take me to your leader when they come to take him to Downing Street I just think it's such a childish moment of glee and you know I'm into it and then the other thing which is probably a little bit violent but you know blowing up Downing Street does not seem like that bad of an idea
0: Let's just start again. Yeah. Yeah. Let's give it a go. Sorry, Boris. We'll give you a heads up so you can get yourself, your wife and your child clear of the environment. But yeah, maybe let's just... Yeah. Yeeting it doesn't yeah. seem like that better than... Uh, maybe this way. is the, the concept with those institutions, right? That we're not like, oh, just putting someone new inside the existing shell. Maybe we just raise it to the ground and build a new one.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that was quite satisfying seeing it blown up. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> awesome. Um, how about you? So
0: I also have two as well. One is just the entire personage of Harriet Jones mm-hmm. M.P. for Fly Dunnell. you've got she's the
1: brilliant. right accent
0: right? yeah, I know I do oh so funny so yeah she's great she's great for so many reasons like she is a person of action she will not be belittled or you know she kind of like was like okay fine you know get me to shut up but I'll work this out I will find a way around to get what I need here she's super smart she's like you know really helpful in this episode and a perfect example of like an older middle aged woman showing some power showing some agency like having a depth of personality and you know we're talking about the pressure to conform she isn't super super dressy. She isn't, you know, lots of things today that have older female characters. You know, there are women who don't look their age Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and that's part of the reason they're allowed to kind of exist. (laughs) Harriet Jones isn't like that. She is what she is. She looks like a middle-aged woman and that's grand. Mm. My second one is just generally the cameos in these two episodes. So as a child of the British Isles, Blue Peter, and having that actual Matt from Blue Peter, so I used to. This wasn't long after I stopped watching Blue Peter. So having actual Matt from Blue Peter making the alien cake, it was just brilliant. It's just classic Blue Peter vibes. And then Andrew Marr, the reporter and journalist yeah. and presenter, Andrew Marr, doing like an actual proper cameo. Like he's a serious journal reporter presenter. And yeah, he's in an episode of Doctor Who. So. I think he's in a
1: couple actually.
0: It's great. Everyone loves it. It's just an institution
1: good to get, have you here to pick up the british references that yeah. i would just be like i don't know random guy
0: <laughs> suppose he's important awesome cool so next week we'll be discussing episode five dalek let us know your thoughts by emailing atardis of at gmail.com or find us on twitter and instagram check out the show notes for links and for all the references discussed in this app cool lovely and we'll catch up next week yeah have a great week bye bye